You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln audio podcast. Today we're going to spend some time talking about significance. We're going to spend some time discovering uh, what greatness really is, how greatness is actually defined. And with that, I'm going to toss a question out to you in just a moment. If I'm going to toss it out, that means I'm going to toss it so you can toss something back to me, which means I want some response. Don't leave me up here hanging. Uh, And here's the question. Uh, uh, Here's the question. How... Uh, how does the culture, how does the world that we live in every day, how does the world, the culture define greatness? Before you answer, here's what I want to know, what, what I want you to know. I'm not looking for the right answer right now. I'm not looking for the biblical answer. We're going to get there. But I'm talking about the people that you encounter maybe in your neighborhood, in the workplace, in your school, um, the rich and the famous celebrities, politicians. How might those people, uh, how might the people in the world, how do they define Fine, greatness. So now, it's out to you. Power, wealth, success, power, looks, winning, Instagram followers. I hadn't heard that one yet. Friends on Facebook, money. What else? Jobs. Stuff. Yeah, stuff. How many toys do you have? Anybody else? Love. All of these are are, are right answers when we think in terms of of, of the culture. Uh, Greatness is often defined uh, by uh, talents and abilities. For instance, Simone Biles, the young gymnast, because of her recent gymnastic achievements, she's been declared probably to be the greatest gymnast of all times. Others would define greatness in terms of accomplishments. For instance, Steve Jobs would be considered great because of his accomplishments within the Apple empire. Others might uh, define greatness based on historical contributions, historical significance. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Edison, uh, Susan B. Anthony, Betsy Ross, people who have made a significant contribution to history, so they're considered to be great. Others might define greatness by the amount of power that a person has been able, power and control that a person has been able to obtain, and then there would be others who would say uh, that greatness is defined by how quickly you can climb up the corporate ladder within your organization, who has the largest staff, who has the most prestigious title. The world, uh, the culture defines greatness in terms of power and position and prestige and possessions. But what's so interesting and what's so true is Jesus contradicts all of that. He describes greatness with a totally different mindset and attitude, a different truth, because he says that the pathway to greatness is through serving. Let me say that again. The pathway to greatness is through serving. I'd like for you to take your Bibles, and I'd like for you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I want to read a story to you from uh, Mark's account of the gospel. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35, uh, and I'm going to read through 45. And this is proof uh, of the truth that Jesus taught. So Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 35. I'll give you just a second to turn there. This isn't in your notes. This is an extra Pastor Stan one. Uh, It says in verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. (coughs) 
Uh, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to, uh, but to, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Uh, and those who, the one who has prepared it is the Father. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Um, it's interesting because the gospel writer Matthew also includes this story in his gospel presentation. Um, but there's a, there's a little bit of a difference. See, I wouldn't call it a discrepancy, uh, but we don't exactly know why he gives a different account of the story, but it still lines up. Um, Matthew, as he uh, recalls this story, rather than re uh, attributing the request to James and John to sit at Jesus' right and left-hand side, um, he actually attributes uh, the request to, to their mother, Salome. And you think, well, why? Why would he do that? And again, we don't really know. It doesn't mean there's a discrepancy in Scripture, but we know that they were writing to different audiences, uh, so there may have been a reason there. Uh, but as I began to speculate that, I also began to think, well, uh, I wonder what the difference might be. Uh, maybe, maybe as Matthew was writing, he, uh, as he viewed James and John, he thought, well, James and John, they're part of the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. These are really saintly men. They're disciples of Jesus Christ. So they would never, ever make such a selfish uh, request. It sounds something more like a mother would do on behalf of their children. I hope I didn't offend all the mothers in the room by saying that. But you love your children and you want the best for them. Um, whereas... Uh, Matthew attributes it to, to, to the mother. Uh, Mark attributes it, attributes it directly to James and John. In other words, he presents James and John as ordinary people just like you and I. You and I are very capable of making the same kind of request. Uh, as Mark paints the picture of James and John, he paints them as very ambitious men with their eyes set on... Um, this, uh, this superior place of seating to sit on the right and left. They had their eyes on position and they had their eyes on power. Uh, what would be the catalyst within them to cause them to make such a request? Again, we don't know, but if we speculate, could it be because of their social status? Uh, we know if we read Mark chapter 1, verse 20, that it would appear that James and John came from a well-off family, that there was money in the family. And Mark chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that they had hired servants. And so maybe there was a, a, a sense of social superiority. Uh, maybe there was a sense of uh, a little bit of snobbery or maybe some, a sense of entitlement that said, of course, who else but us because of our social standing would be the ones who would sit on his right hand and left hand. Maybe they felt they deserved, but we, we don't really know. Uh, not only does Mark portray them as very ambitious men, but he also portrays them, presents them as two men who had 
failed completely to understand Jesus. And here's, why, here's what I mean. Um, just prior, we started in verse 35, but in the verses just prior to that, uh, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And as he's speaking to them, he's giving them some insight into his very near future. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And once I'm in Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be ridiculed and I'm going to be mocked. And here's what I want you to know. I'm going to be put to death, but death will not hold me down. Three days later, I will rise again. I will overcome death. And Jesus was actually speaking. He was introducing the coming of his um, eternal, his heavenly kingdom. But James and John, it seems, in their narrow, limited thinking, were only able to think in terms of an earthly excuse me, temporary kingdom in which they would uh, literally on the earth that Jesus would be an earthly king and they would sit and rule on either side of him. And so Jesus asked them this question, um, would you be willing, are you willing to suffer the same kinds of things that I will suffer? And it's, it's as if though Jesus was saying, guys, here's what I want you, I want you to think about. I want you to think about what you're asking me. Because it won't be easy. It's as if Jesus was saying, um, there's no crown without ex first experiencing a cross. Let me say that again. There's no crown without first experiencing a cross. Have you found that to be true in life? I mean, yeah, there's, there's painful experiences that lead to the end glory. And it's in those times that uh, Jesus builds us, molds us, uh, shapes and forms our character um, from Jesus' response, we begin to immediately see that he had a very different standard uh, uh, for, for greatness. Um, he was saying achieving greatness will not be easy. Um, James and John began to take in the question that he asked. He said, Will you, are you willing to uh, suffer what I've suffered? And they respond and they say, yes, we will. And Jesus says to them, actually, you, you will. You will suffer the same kinds of things I suffer. And what we know is that James did suffer greatly for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he was beheaded. And we don't know if John died a martyr's death, but we know that there was great suffering throughout his life for the sake uh, of the gospel. Um, uh, he did go on to give them an answer because they said, can we sit at your right and left hand? And Jesus said, well, that's not mine to give. The Father has already predetermined. What we have to remember in this story is that there's a second part to the story. Remember, there were 10 other disciples. And when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John asked, they were uh, uh, more than just a little upset. In fact, the scripture says that they were indignant. They were indignant that these two men that they had been with would take the time, would have the nerve to ask Jesus if they could sit on the right and left. And Jesus recognized that there was some tension. There was some conflict among the 12. So he pulls them all together. And as he pulls them all together and he begins to talk, he presents two standards for greatness. First, he presents the world, the cultural standard for greatness. He talks about how the fact that those who rule over the Gentiles do so with control and with power. But then he goes on to say, but the pathway to greatness, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you have to serve. You have to sacrifice and you have to serve. And we think about how does that apply to us? Well, uh, greatness is not found in me reducing others to serve me, but greatness is found in me reducing myself 
to serve others. Let me say that again. Greatness is not found in me or you reducing ourselves uh, or having, uh, reducing others to serve us, but instead greatness is found when we reduce ourselves to serve others. This is complete paradox to our natural inclinations. I mean, think about it. How often do we find ourselves more interested in serve me instead of service? And how often have you encountered someone who was looking for a new church and they said, we're looking for a church that uh, will bless me and serve me and meet my needs instead of hearing someone say, we're looking for a place where we can worship and we can be a blessing by serving other people. And here's what I want to say this morning. Thankfully, in my time, in our time here at Grace Covenant East Lincoln Family, we have not found the serve me attitude to be the predominant attitude or mindset. Instead, we continually see evidence that there is a growing understanding of who we are. There's a growing understanding that uh, we were placed here uh, to serve and be a blessing to others. We continually see evidence that says uh, it's not about serve me, but it's about how I can serve. We see a people who are continually committed and growing in the truth that Jesus taught that says the pathway to greatness is through service. Um, what we've seen is that there's a continual growing understanding of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, there's a growing understanding that we understand we were created to serve. And there's a growing understanding of 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10. Would you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4? Look at verse 10. I'll give you a second to get there. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10, it says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. In other words, there's a growing understanding that we've been called to serve. And there's a growing understanding of Matthew chapter 20. Would you turn over to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20, I want to read to you verses 26 and 20 through 28. Uh, it's Matthew's version of the story that we read in Mark chapter 10. And, in, and beginning in verse 26, it says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many, there's a growing understanding that we understand that our significance comes through serving others. Um, we continually see evidence that uh, we're understanding our identity, what that means and how to live it out. You see, our identity is in Jesus Christ. And when we came into relationship with Jesus Christ, we were brought into, we were adopted 
into God's family. And because we were brought into, we were adopted into God's family, uh, Scripture says that we are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet. And for some, maybe it would seem strange to refer to the church as the body of Christ. What does that actually mean? How do you live that out? So another passage of Scripture I want us to look at, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read a lengthy passage to you beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to read down through verse 26. It says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor and the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts are need no special treatment but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body, but all of its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Let me ask you, when's the last time that you stopped to think about how uh, amazing the human body is? When's the last time you stopped to think about how all of the parts of the body are working together in harmony and how one part cooperates with all the rest of the body? It's amazing when you think about it. And Paul takes this imagery of the human body and he applies it to the church. And he gives a picture of how the church is to work together in unity to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ because we are the church. We are his body. We are his hands and his feet. Paul is saying that just as the human body has many parts, so the body of Christ is made up of many parts. Uh, we are those parts. You see, Jesus is no longer here on earth in physical form. When he went to heaven, he passed on that assignment to us that on this earth, we would be his hands and his feet and we would carry out the mission of Jesus Christ. And Paul helps us to understand through this imagery that just as the human body has many unique parts, so the body of Christ is made up of individuals with unique talents and skills and abilities. And every single one of them is needed if we're going to effectively accomplish what God has called us to do. To tell the world the story of Jesus Christ. To tell the world the story of freedom that comes for Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul helps us to understand that just as the human body is healthy, when all the parts are functioning together, so it is with the church. 
The church is healthy when all the parts are functioning together. So I began to think about this. And I thought, well, if that's one of the measurements of church health, then I would say to us that we're doing pretty good. Listen to this. Earlier, I told you that we every weekend we have 56 individuals who uh, make sure that ministry happens in a very effective way. Well, the great news is it's not the same 56 individuals every week. But as we calculate, we're able to come up with a number that approximately 165 people from our East Lincoln Grace Covenant family are serving on a consistent basis in a variety of ways, using their unique skills, talents, and abilities. That means that almost half, approximately 50% of our church, of our family, is serving using their gifts. And I think that that's to be commended. We are a healthy church. Now, there's another 50%. I'm not going to miss out on that. That other 50%, we have a place for you. And I'm hoping today, I'm praying, it's been our prayer that if you're not serving, that you're, uh, somehow you're motivated to begin to serve in a different way. But I, I recognized, even as we were working on this video, as fun as it was, that there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we never know about. In fact, did you know that there's a group of women on the Cornelius campus that make sure that those worship guides are stuffed every week? It doesn't just happen. They don't just kind of appear. Those ladies work every week. And uh, children are led in worship. And people do have to get part. I mean, those things don't have. And I had this new revelation of how much ministry is dependent on all of us, but all of you working together. And so today we say, thank you. Thank you for how you serve. Maybe you're newer to the campus or maybe you had to take a break for a while. Uh, we would like to see everyone serving somewhere. There's a place for you. And so I want to give you some action points because I hope that you've been motivated uh, to serve in a, in a new way. So three action points. Uh, we would encourage you to identify your, new, you, your unique skills, talents, and abilities. And we can help you do that. Grace Track. Uh, Grace Track is a four-session uh, uh, course and within it there's a segment that actually takes spiritual gifts test and you begin to talk about these things actually grace track starts today if you want to stay for the 11 o'clock service just saying um, uh, the second thing we would encourage you to do is find your place and add value and strength to the body of christ um, you, one of the simple ways is visit the ministry table over on the other side of Guest Central. They just stop by and just ask some questions. That's a great starting place. Uh, and maybe there's a, in that conversation, something will happen and you'll say, I, I think I know where I can serve. And then finally, I would say, take the plunge. Take the plunge. Choose to be a contributor, not just a consumer. So don't just have a conversation, but sign up and then show up. Uh, that, that's the way to start. And what's going to happen is you begin to serve. You begin working with a team of people and you make new friendships. Community happens. You begin to grow. You begin to help people. People begin to help you. There's nothing like serving. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thank you for letting us just have a fun day today. 
Uh, it's, it's been a great celebration. Let me pray. Father God, uh, we come to you in Jesus' name, and uh, we thank you for your uh, spirit here. We thank you for laughter. We thank you for joy. We thank you that you have shown us the true pathway to greatness. Father God, we just say thank you for all who serve, and we thank you in advance for those who are going to begin to serve. I pray a blessing over this people as they go out from this place, and uh, just in every way, every day, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.